When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Calm Versations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Calmversant is Lior Sapir, who is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which is a think tank that is trying to design policy for the future of America. We get into what a think tank is and what his role is in that institute. Lior has studied American governance and political theory, and he brings that knowledge to bear on the way that gender is being shaped through jurisprudence and through policy and how that level of the discourse is kind of hidden and very strategic and rather complex. So it was great to hear his ideas, to hear his insights, and to expand my own knowledge of how the landscape might be shifting in the coming months, weeks, years, and decades. In the description, I'll link to his articles and to his Twitter. So you definitely, if you like the guy, give him a follow. I found him just a brilliant interlocutor, and I'm glad to have him on my show. So without further ado, here is Lior Sapir. I've been after you for some time now. Yeah, I apologize for that. No, you're a busy, busy man. Well, you are too, so. Well, yeah. Yeah, um, can I just start asking you questions? Cause I'm yeah. brimming with curiosity. If curiosity sure. is something that you brim with rather than, uh, I guess, hunger with what's a think tank and is uh, the Manhattan Institute a think tank? Um, so the answer to your second question is easier. It's yes. Okay. Um, a think tank. Well, I mean, think of it as, <clears throat> an intermediary between um, academia and policymakers. So, um, you know, it has researchers who um, care about science, uh, scientific accuracy, um, data, um, facts, analysis. Um, and they, you know, uh, we, uh, we do analysis on a, on a faster scale uh, or, or a quicker pace than what you would find in the academy in order to bring the most relevant research insights um, to policymakers. And even though, you know, you're used to hearing things like a right wing think tank, a left wing think tank, um, all think tanks that I know of, or at least all the serious ones are nonpartisan. Um, which means that even though they may have ideological leanings, um, they, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to, we are trying to speak to all policymakers. Um, but obviously different think tanks have different ideological le leanings. Um, so, um, so, you know, so the Manhattan Institute is a public policy think tank situated in New York. Um, it deals a lot with um, local issues, especially around um, crime and education um, and finances. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in recent decades, the Manhattan Institute has also expanded it and it, it does uh, analysis of broader cultural and political issues as well. Mm -hmm. And when did you start, uh, there? Uh, I started 
part-time uh, in January of 2022, and I've been full-time since uh, May of last year, so a little over a year. Okay, and where where were you coming from? Like, what was your trajectory into uh, academia? I was I was uh, I, I just completed my postdoc, um, and I you know after both during and after my um, doctoral work, I was teaching in American politics, uh, a little bit political theory as well, mm-hmm. um, and um, I realized for a bunch of reasons I realized that uh, the academic track is just not for me. Um, and, you know, I just started writing publicly about this issue um, of uh, pediatric gender medicine and more broadly, you know, transgender civil rights. And of course, when you write publicly on this topic and you take um, the positions that I do, you practically shut off the academic track permanently, um, hmm. with the exception of a tiny handful of, of um, colleges. Um, but uh, you know, the academic track is pretty much uh, off the table for me so, at this point, and I'm happy for it, that. Yeah. Yeah. Is it fair to uh, suggest <clears throat> that your position is trans skeptical? Is that just generally speaking? <laughs> well, I guess it depends how you define trans skeptical. What okay. do you mean by that? Uh, well, I just, what would you say your general? Uh, viewpoint is on that issue and why would that point of view shut you off from this institution called the academy that is built around the process of finding truth so either there's something wrong with your position that's false and the academy can't deal with it or there's something wrong with the academy well uh, i think there's something wrong with the academy um you would would say that of course yeah yeah (laughs) i mean I, I would describe my position as, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in the truth uh, of the matter when it comes to all uh, issues related to not just to trans, but, but generally um, issues of public policy and science and philosophy. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think that this has become a t- taboo topic in the academy, um, that there's really one line of beliefs or positions that one can take publicly. Um, uh, and, and if one departs from that line, from the party line, one risks serious professional and even in some cases, personal consequences. Um, and I don't just mean taking extreme, you know, positions against transgender people. Um, I mean, even doing basic things like questioning whether, for example, the medical community's consensus around um, gender affirming care is based on good, reliable evidence. Just going to say, these are the types of questions that anybody should be able to raise, especially in an academic setting, um, especially if you're if you're committed to doing so in a way that's rational and evidence based and not unnecessarily antagonistic. Yeah. And what does this say about the Academy's belief system that there are taboo topics now? I suppose there always probably has been, um, but it's shifted yeah. over, over the right. years. It's right. really concentrated around certain topics now. Race is, is mm-hmm. off topic. Gender is off topic. Mm-hmm. Um, Colonialism, if, which ties to race, but, but is, okay. I think is itself a, a slightly separate issue. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's right, especially when it comes to uh, questions of identity, and especially group identity. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are certain topics, or I should I should say, there are certain questions or conclusions that are just off limits. Mm-hmm. And what's your take on that? Is that is that the outgrowth of a ideological 
um, program or um, yeah. the manifestation? Do you have any, you know, I have a bunch of theories, but I'm wondering like what you think about that. What does that show us about these institutions? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question. And I, I have to admit, I haven't given this thought for some time now. If you had asked me a year ago, I would have had, you know, an hour long okay. spiel to give you. But um, okay. I, I suppose at, 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 at bottom, it has to do with the confluence of ideological factors and certain institutional realities. Um, just to give you an example, um, in the wake of the federal government's involvement in, through Title IX, um, with how schools accommodate, <clears throat> initially it was women, um, nowadays it's uh, a variety of sex sexual and gender minorities, um, through a series of uh, federal mandates from both the federal courts and the Office for Civil Rights, um, that created enormous pressures on universities to create compliance bureaucracies. Um, you know, so the Title IX offices and Title IX officers and some universities, especially the, the prestigious ones that, you know, really care about their reputations, Harvard, Yale, um, some of these universities will have dozens of Title IX officers. Now, if you have dozens of Title IX officers, that is a, a virtual guarantee that you will have a steady stream of Title IX violations because um, they need to justify their, their position somehow. And in order to create or ensure, I should say, that there's a steady stream of Title IX violations, um, especially in a university that's, you know, that's very progressive, um, where students are having, you know, less interaction than they used to, um, that means in part expanding the definition of what qualifies as sexual harassment. And so because of these institutional realities, this bureaucratic inertia of creating a co constant flow of complaints in order to justify the allocation of resources, um, you're going to get, you know, uh, what we call creeping wokeness, right? You're going to get um, ever more um, uh, demanding and oppressive speech codes um, that rule out ever more innocuous forms of, of speech, and that includes academic inquiry, um, so I could give some examples of this, but but I think you 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 get the the basic point here, which is that it's not it's not just that you know there's an ideology here that has shaped institutional realities. It's also that there are certain political um, uh, political developments, legal developments over the past half century or so that have given rise to a certain intellectual culture, and those two things feed off each other. Hmm. So it. I guess so. We it might be the case that we don't have to nuke the institutions of academia and start over again. We can just uh, take the government out of that. You think? I mean, in order to kind of correct course. Well, I, I think some of this deregulation would be helpful for sure, <clears throat> getting rid of some of these perverse incentives. Um, but I don't think that that would be enough. I think the universities now have uh, you know kind of modeled themselves after. Um, you know, kind of the, the worst type of um, closed-mindedness, um, by, by which I mean um, closed-mindedness to ideas that are not proved by, you know, kind of the fashionable progressive sensibilities of the day. Um, and I think that, you know, if you look at, uh, there's a really good book called, um, I think it's called Conservatives in the American University, um, Joshua Dunn, and I'm blinking on the, the second author, 
Um, and they really do kind of an in-depth, you know, rigorous assessment of the ideological landscape in American universities. Um, and they provide some very helpful data with regard to the breakdown of, for example, faculty members. Um, I think they also uh, give some data on it, uh, administrators. Um, and it's, as you would expect, it's extremely lopsided, right? It's, um, it's almost all, they're almost all, especially in certain departments, certain fields of study, um, it's almost all Democrats, almost all on the left, very, very few conservatives, or even for that matter, liberals of the old stripe. Mm -hmm. um, people like Mark Lilla over at um, Columbia, uh, you know, that, that breed is also dying out in the American university. And, um, you know, one, of, one thing of importance about these institutions is that they're very uh, insular and self-perpetuating, which means that, you know, uh, faculty members are the ones who choose the graduate students. They're the ones who choose faculty hires. And if they are overwhelmingly, um, uh, you know, um, orthodox in their views, um, it stands to reason that they are going to choose graduate students who ask the right type of question and provide the right type of answer. Um, and are and usually more yeah. radical rather than less radical than them. Yeah, I mean, that I think is kind of baked into the structure of modern left left wing thought. And I think you're seeing some of that on the right as well. But it's, I think it's especially powerful on the left, this idea of nobody to my left, right? There's never, there's never a form of radicalism that goes too far. Um, as long hmm. as it's couched in the same kind of structure of thoughts that, for example, um, victims of oppression have... Um, unrivaled access to knowledge, this whole idea of lived experience. Mm -hmm. um, as long as you kind of plug into that basic structure of thought, there's no claim, no hypothesis, no article um, that can be said or written that uh, kind of progressive faculty members would say, okay, that goes too far. That's, that's clearly insane. Mm -hmm. And I think a good, uh, you know, good evidence of this, a good example of this <clears throat> is the hoax from a couple of years ago by um, James Lindsay, Peter Bogosian, and Helen Pluckrose. Um, you know, they spent a year writing 20 papers to submit to peer-reviewed publications. I think seven of them got, um, got accepted. Um, and these papers were so outlandish and so absurd, um, you know, like the, the dog, park, dog park rape culture paper, which actually ended up winning a prize. Um, there was one paper in which they uh, took a chapter out of Mein Kampf and replaced the German, the words, the German nation with intersectional feminism. Um, I mean, these, these papers are so outlandish. You have to wonder how did they get through the gatekeeping of academic publishing? And the answer of course has to do with this basic idea of no one to my left. There's no, there's never an idea as long as no, it's, no enemy to the left. Yeah. Right. No one to my left, meaning there's no, yeah. So as long as it's framed in a way that, that, that taps into this basic structure of thought, um, it has to be approved because you don't want to be a bigot. You don't want to be an oppressor. Mm -hmm. And then it, and then it goes from the academic institutions to government and from the academic institutions into the media, right? Cause they're all sleeping with each other constantly, right? It's, it's pipeline to the elite. So this is, this is the elite. Right. More or less of America. Well, the official elite, the elite on paper, the elite, you know, that we see, it just seems like due to the dynamics, it will eventually tilt over or at least uh, break from reality to such a degree that it, it is no longer tenable. But it might be the case that this could run perpetually. Just 
keep um, on going and going and going. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's a big question, but... Yeah, it is a big question. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's... There's the old problem of um, of, of reality. To, it's it you know, um, what's the saying? You can kick nature out, um, but she'll come in back through the through the back door. I'm, I'm blanking on the expression, but yeah, I mean, mm. you can't you can't wage war with reality with truth forever. Okay. Um, eventually, people are going to want to ask what is true as opposed to what is approved, what belief systems are approved. Um, mm. And, you know, you ask about, can this go on forever? I don't think it's going to go on forever. The question is, how is it going to get resolved? And, you know, there's kind of a few different models here. One, um, which is something that, you know, my colleague Christopher Rufo at the Manhattan Institute is, is leading right now, um, you know, starts from kind of recognizing that the, that the corruption of the universities really has to do with the creation of these DEI bureaucracies. Um, that that this is really kind of the the the, the, um, the core of the problem um, that needs to be addressed if 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 reform is ever going to be on the table in a serious way, and so you know the, the, this is going to entail some uh, painful and I mean both financially and politically some painful moves in the short term um, in order to try to so to speak decapture these institutions you know firing the bureaucrats who who are yeah, not but- committed yeah. If if that's all based on uh, Title Nine, then it's all based on the Civil Rights Code. So what you're actually having to, I'm, and I'm following, is it Christopher Caldwell's yeah. Age of Entitlement? It's not Caldwell. Yes. It's, yeah. Or, yes, Caldwell, um, right. where he lays out an argument that's really compelling to me, but I, I know that there's detractors to it or critique criticisms of it. But he he kind of shows that the Civil Rights Law. Um, has set up a, a tremendous uh, government, uh, just legal apparatus, bureaucracy, whose entire sense of existence is to control the morality of the United States, uh, uh, the citizens, right? Like all the way to forcing people to bake a cake, right? Um, yes, I mean, it's a, I, I think he frames it as it was a silent constitutional revolution Yeah. Um, yeah. to supplant the old constitutional order. Um, I think he somewhat exaggerates the extent to which it was a break. Um, but but I, I, I think his thesis is more or less correct. Um, and yes, I think you're right. It's going to be very difficult to control, um, to, to regain control over these um, institutions of higher education. And by regain control, I don't mean bring them under, you know, Republican leadership. I mean, no. um, or at least a theocracy them... of some sort, right? A little bit of Christian nationalism can go a long way, right? No. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd, <laughs> I'd want to see that, but, um, but at least to get them to commit themselves once again to basic principles of free inquiry and free speech, um, to get them to uh, convey to their students that when you're in, in an, uh, you know, when you're a college student, hmm. you are an extremely fortunate individual who who gets to be on the receiving end of a tradition of knowledge that's being transmitted to you. Um, and that this really is, um, you know, a, a luxury that very, very few people in human history have had, and that you should be extremely grateful for it. You know, when I when I used to teach mm-hmm. um, in colleges, um, I used to say to my students, you know, th- the difference between an open-minded student and a radical student, if I can put it that way, is that the radical student shows up on campus on day one, looks around and says, 
where are all the injustices and how is it possible that that this institution still has them and what can we do to fix it? Um, the open-minded student arrives on campus, looks around, is mesmerized by the beautiful buildings, by the, you know, the beautiful lawns, the students sitting and reading and discussing philosophical ideas together and says, you know, this is such an unlikely thing for me to witness, given everything we know about human nature and human history. Um, how is it possible that an institution like this can exist? How is it possible that I set foot into a classroom and I can trust that the person standing up at the podium there is more knowledgeable about a subject than I am and is going to give me reliable, uh, if not knowledge, then at least reliable ways of thinking about the world. I mean, there's so much trust that has to go into from the side of the student that has to go into the um, university as an institution in order for it to operate at a basic level as, as it has to operate, that it's almost a wonder that these institutions still exist. Um, they're so unbelievably fragile. They could be ruined so easily. Um, so the open-minded student says, you know, how is it that such an unlikely institution can exist? Um, and, and so the, the beginning feeling is not one of righteous indignation, like the radical student has, that things are not perfect according to their admittedly very limited understanding of the world. The, the initial emotion of the open-minded student is one of gratitude and awe. Now that can change. And in a lot of these students, it does change over the course of four years. They're, they're, they're enlightened in, in certain ways and they can start to realize that the things that they were gr grateful for, they should actually be challenging. Um, but the initial position has to be one of gratitude um, and appreciation for the delicacy of, of the situation. Mm -hmm. So that I think if, if universities could uh, adopt that mindset, um, the, the people leading universities, the bureaucrats, but also the professors, of course, um, and try to imprint that mindset uh, upon students when they, when they enter in day, uh, on day one, I think that would go a long way towards reforming these institutions. Uh, unfortunately, the exact opposite is the case. We know that that uh, universities from day one um, treat every every student as a potential radical um, and do try to mobilize them against what a very narrow and unsatisfying definition of social justice. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. <laughs> so sorry, that was a very long-winded answer no. to your question. but um... Well, that, that's a cultural change, and it probably has to start before uh, college. It should probably start in high school, but we know the colleges have staffed all of the education system to create radicals. Like they're radicalizing right. their, their, the pipeline, the radical pipeline. So, Right. And there, there are holdouts. Don't get me wrong. There are okay. good programs, good universities still, but they are, they are the, the minority um, okay. for sure. So the, this is kind of like, that's the background of the culture war. This is all very culture war-y. Um, just, but by which I mean, this is all political. Like this is a political critique of these institutions that have succumbed to politi 
globalization or politicization. Um, one there, and then from that, there's varieties of different specific cultural issues, and one of those cultural issues is this gender thing, uh, and and we can see that that operates in the institution, um, and then how the institution deals with these ideas. It, you say they're excommunicado if you if you touch these certain questions and stuff like that but we know that the institutions promulgate these ideas defend these ideas and then pump, pump them through the culture why did you land on gender and how do you win yeah. <laughs> how do you win is that what you asked yeah. yeah how do we win you, do you mean how do we win in the academy or how do we win more broadly um how do we get children to um how do we get the american medical uh industry to stop oh, castrating okay. and mutilating children. Um, let, so let's return to that question. I'll, I'll just give you a brief, brief background on how I got into this, and then we can okay. we can take up that question. Um, I came to graduate school wanting to study political philosophy, actually. Um, and I did. Um, first few years of graduate school. Um, I loved it. It's phenomenal. Um, and um, some of the thinkers that really got your goat going? Uh, Rousseau, um, Nietzsche, Tocqueville, um, yeah. I got interested in the early moderns at some point, um, Bacon, Descartes. Um, but, you know, uh, halfway through my graduate studies, I was introduced to uh, American government as a field of study, as a subfield. Um, I had a really uh, great set of professors, um, both in political theory and in um, American government, who introduced me to that, to, to, uh, to American politics. Um, and I fell in love. It was just, it was, um, it was fascinating. It's a, it's a fascinating country that we live in. Uh, mm. Fascinating history, fascinating system of government that's so unique compared to other countries. Um, and so when it came time to choose a dissertation topic, um, I was looking for a topic that would really combine my, in, my two interests in political theory on the one hand and American government and institutions on the other hand. Um, and usually in this kind of situation, because I'm, I'm hardly the only one at my program who has uh, dual interests in that regard, um, usually students tend to gravitate towards questions of jurisprudence, the courts, because that really is, you know, the courts are, are the one institution where uh, government officials have to actually justify um, their actions using reasoned arguments. So okay. it's it's the uh, it's the institution that um, people uh, philosophically minded people tend to want to study the most for 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 that reason, um, but uh, so I, I was interested in the courts and I did end up writing quite a, uh, my dissertation focuses quite a bit on the courts, um, but the same week that I finished my comprehensive exams, the Obama administration's Department of Education handed down a unilateral decree. It was called a Dear Colleague Letter. Um, which is almost Orwellian in its tone, yeah. um, Dear Colleague Letter, where it basically instructed all schools in the United States that receive federal funding, which is almost all schools, um, that as a condition of their receipt of federal funds um, under Title IX, they are required to treat students in accordance with their gender identity rather than uh, their biological sex. And what I found fascinating about this Dear Colleague Letter is that um, number one, two things. Number one, it didn't explain, it, did, it didn't give a philosophical account of what gender identity is. Okay. Wh why, why? That would human... be my first question. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? R right. Well, so they didn't Obama. explain. They okay. just said um, that the conventional understanding of male and female is a stereotype. 
Okay. And so this, and and so you you wonder why, and why do they even call it a stereotype, especially because as we know, um, gender identity itself relies heavily on stereotypes. Okay. So, um, so the question is why did the office for civil rights and rather than, or, or in place of an explanation for what gender identity is simply asserted that the conventional understanding of sex that it's meant to replace is an outdated stereotype and therefore legally impermissible. Um, and the answer has to do with the second component of the, of the Dear Colleague letter that I found fascinating, which is that the Obama administration said that it was really doing nothing new, that it was merely clarifying um, decades of federal case law <laughs> that had already come to this conclusion. Really? Um, and, and that case law um, uh, incorporated this notion of stereotypes in a very complicated um, set of legal precedents um, uh, that, you know, some of the most important of which were in the 80s and 90s. Um, and so the Obama administration, and, and they weren't under Title IX, they were under Title VII and the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Um, Title VII is the law dealing with employment. Um, and so the, you know, the Obama Office for Civil Rights basically said, basically said, close enough, good enough. Um, other, you know, other uh, courts and other cases and other contexts um, dealing with adults, um, where, uh, incidentally, as I found in my research, the question of what makes us male and female was never raised. And in fact, to the extent that it was raised, courts in those cases agreed that male and female are determined by anat anatomy and biology, not gender identity. Oh, okay. um, but regardless, the, the uh, Office for Civil Rights kind of abstracted away from the logic of all of these precedents and said that these precedents require uh, schools to treat students in accordance with their asserted gender identity rather than their biological sex. So I wanted to understand how is it possible that a federal agency hands down this dear colleague letter um, and gets away with it, essentially, because uh, they did. Um, and so that, you know, that kind of took me down a, a number of, of rabbit holes, one being I had to learn administrative law, uh, okay. I had to kind of delve into the into the history of, um, uh, of, of uh, changes to American courts over the course of the 20th century, um, equal uh, protection jurisprudence. Changes in how they went about uh, reaching decisions or um, rationalizing decisions or declaring what is real and unreal, the relationship to reality. Well, I would say changes having to do both with kind of the... Um, with court, put it this way, when a political scientist studies courts, we st study courts as political institutions, as institutions okay. that make public policy first and foremost. That's what they do. Um, they, what makes courts different from other institutions is that they make policy in a different way. Um, they make policy essentially while denying that that's what they're doing. Um, because for a court to maintain its legitimacy, for a judge to maintain the legitimacy of his decision, he has to frame it as merely interpreting existing law and not creating new law or and therefore new policy. Hmm. So kind of uniquely among the institutions of government, courts are the one institution that make law while denying that they make law. And once you understand that basic fact about courts, um, a lot starts to make sense about how courts make public policy and not just what kind of policy they make. Okay. Um, would it be better for them to just uh, for judges to just say that they're divine, uh, they have 
divine power. They have the the mandate of heaven to shape and direct society. Would it be better if they didn't do that wordplay, if they just said what they are? So look, I mean, you know, this is kind of a, and, and I don't mean this dismissively, this is a, a more cynical view of of judges and especially American judges that they see themselves as, as kind of, you know, um, kings among men, right? Philosopher kings. Um, I think they're pro- that probably describes some judges. I don't think it describes all or even most, uh, including, by the way, judges who do make policy, um, unapologetically almost make policy. Um, I think I, I think a much better explanation is number one that the institutional features of American government, separation of powers, the decentralization, federalism, um, make it very very difficult to have uh, you know laws um, made and implemented um, in a centralized way like they are in a European parliamentary system, um, and because of a number of changes from the 1950s and 1960s, including a lot of the changes discussed by Christopher Caldwell, Christopher Caldwell in his book, um, that really thrusts the, the courts, especially the federal courts, into the policymaking process, um, irrespective of the judicial doctrine. I should, shouldn't say irrespective, because the judicial doctrines were very important, like in Brown versus Board of Education. Um, but but the but the the political realities themselves were enough to bring the courts much much deeper into the policy process. So that's the first thing, and then the second thing is that in, especially in the eighties and nineties, um, the liberal wing of the American legal establishment, um, with people like you know um, Ronald Dworkin at its head, um, developed new theories of jurisprudence that basically allowed judges to say and maybe even believe that they were doing nothing more than interpreting the constitution and interpreting federal statutes even though they were quite obviously creating new law and new public policies um and so uh, you know there were some jurisprudential um, yeah. innovations in the 80s and 90s that um that really got us to where we are now is that um considered a hack and is that at all uh restrained by other uh, aspects of the government? I mean, or is this just kind of, it's on its own. It, the wheels are off. It can do whatever it wants, as long as it justifies itself through various different formalities. Um, so, you know, think back to, well, you and I are, are too young for this, but um, when the Supreme Court decided Brown versus Board of Education, there was that confrontation in Little Rock, Arkansas, um, and, um, you know, and uh, I think it was the governor of Arkansas at the time said, you know, well, well, Chief Justice Earl Warren has made his decision, let him come and enforce it. And what he meant by that, of course, is um, that the, the, the court had, uh, lacks the power of the purse or the power of the sword. Okay. Right? These are the two, um, the, Good. The, uh, right on. The, the powers of the other federal branches. Um, the executive branch has force and the uh, uh, Congress has the power of the purse. What does the court have? Um, the answer is the power of reason, um, of judgment. Um, and that means mm. that um, the court's institutional power, its authority, depends to a very large extent on the willingness of the public through its representatives, but also just the public even apart from the representatives, to regard its decisions as legitimate. And so if you, if you think about somebody like um, Chief Justice John Roberts, I think what makes him unique as a Chief Justice is that he's constantly thinking about the court's reputation, um, which I don't know if he understands it this way, but I, I bet he does, um, which is uh, essential to the court's power. 
to its ability to actually get the other branches of government to respect its decisions. Yeah. So a court has this natural restraint on it, which is that it can never go too far beyond public opinion or the opinion of the most powerful elites of the time, because if it does, its edicts will not be obeyed and, and it will lose its institutional power. Yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of, it, it's like the king. It's, it's some form of king. There, there's got to be like a divine aura about it, a reputation, I guess, to, to make it more uh, salient to modern ears. But in with like the civil rights and other aspects of what people call the deep state, like, like, or Obama positions all these uh, court rulings or whatever, and then starts litigation processes. So you can have law firms and stuff being the actual executive wing of the judiciary, right? By suing people, by pressuring judges, by, by angling reason. I mean, it's kind of, it's lawfare, right? That's, that's what it's called. So it does have yeah. more power than just declaration. It can decide that you owe it $2 billion or whatever, like with Alex Jones or something like that. It can enforce heavy penalties well the court doesn't enforce anything okay the judges are not going to enforce anything they just declare things it's the executive okay. branch that has to enforce the decisions of the court and so okay. and so you know there's a point at which if the executive branch says we're not going to do this because you've gone so far beyond the pale um, you know, uh, the worst thing that can happen from a judge's perspective is that um, uh, his his decree will be disobeyed and he'll have, he won't be able to do anything about it. Right. That's okay. the ultimate sign of his of his impotence. Um, but, you know, you raised a question about, let's call it private actors or non-governmental actors and their involvement in the judicial process. And that is really uh, not just one of the most important features of American government post 1960s. But I think specifically in the case of uh, the transgender uh, uh, rights revolution and what we're seeing today with gender medicine, maybe we can pivot now. Um, I think that is one of the most important aspects of the story that, you know, people who are too focused on the medical debates or on the cultural debates might be um, at risk of, of missing. And so let me say a few words about that and then maybe we can pivot. Um, so beginning in the 1960s, um, under pressure from liberal reformers, um, especially in Congress, um, courts started taking on a new and much more robust role in the policy process. And the basic argument that liberal reformers were making at the time is, look, we created this um, regulatory and welfare state during the New Deal um, with the goal of protecting the little guy over and against the corporations. But what ended up happening over the next 30 years, so argued the liberal reformers, and to some extent they were right, is that these regulatory agencies got captured by the very entities they were supposed to regulate, right? So agency capture, regulatory bureaucratic capture. Um, and so what that, meant, what that meant to the reformers is that we cannot trust um, the agencies of the federal government, of the executive branch, we cannot trust um, these these federal agencies, these bureaucracies, to issue rules and to settle disputes in the public interest, right? This this idea of the public interest um, was very dominant in the 1960s and 70s. Okay. It tied into you know environmentalism and civil rights, uh, good governance, um, consumer protection. Um, these were the major issues of the day. Um, and so then the question became, okay, so how do we ensure that these agencies that are supposed to regulate society in the interest of the common good, of the little, of the little guy, of the, you know, the powerless group, 
Um, how do we make sure that they do that? Um, and the answer presented itself in the form of the courts. Um, why? That's a complicated question. We don't have to get in, into it too much. I, I could just say that um, what makes courts unique among other institutions is that the barriers to entry are much, much lower. Um, you don't have to get together a legislative coalition to, to pass a law or to change the law. It's hmm. enough that a single plaintiff um, whom a judge uh, declares has standing um, can get a favorable decision and you can change the law, not just for you, but for the entire country. Um, and that is essentially what, for example, transgender uh, so, um, uh, advocacy groups have done very effectively over the last 20, 30 years, is they've used especially the courts in order to enact um, a widespread uh, policy change, um, leading also to cultural change. Um, so, so the courts were kind of the natural ally of the liberal, liberal reform movement of the 1960s and 70s, and a lot of the judges themselves were part of that liberal reform movement. The law schools became a lot more um, progressive, a lot more um, reformist in their attitudes, a lot less conservative than they used to be. Um, and so, um, you know, there was a, a period of retrenchment where the perception was that the courts were going too far. This gets us into the 1980s. Um, the, the conservative judicial movement, um, legal movement, uh, Antonin Scalia tried to kind of pull back on the power of courts in the, in the policy process and say, no, was he successful to some extent it was, but some of it also backfired. Um, so for example, um, the famous Chevron case, 1986, 84, I can't remember which one, um, uh, basically the Supreme court said, you know, um, uh, courts should not second guess. Um, an administrative agency's interpretation of its own ambiguous regulation. Hmm. Um, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, courts should not second guess a, a, a delegation, a, a way in which a, a federal agency interprets its delegation of power from Congress. There was another case in 1996 that said the same thing with regard to agencies' interpretation of their own ambiguous rules. And that's really important. Um, that, that case was called Our versus Robbins. That's very important because um, because that case became uh, the, the legal foundation for the Obama administration's um, initiatives on transgender students. So you see how these initiatives that began from the conservative um, uh, legal movement in the 1980s to try to pull back the power of courts in the policy process in order to empower the executive branch in order to make sure that the executive branch take responsibility for laws and policies that, that it tries to either pass or, or, or um, enforce, that these efforts ended up backfiring um, in certain in, in, in very interesting ways. Um, but anyway, I forgot how we got into this, but, but all of this is just to say that, you know, there's some very, very important um, uh, legal and institutional history behind a lot of the changes that we've seen over the last 10, 15 years in regard to the, uh, to the gender issue. Yeah. Um, and if you're just looking at it from a perspective of somebody interested in the medical debates or the cultural debates, yes. again, you're likely to miss not just the reasons why we are where we are, but how we can get out of where we are. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This is very, very important conversation. So thanks. I wanted to get deeper. So thank you for, for sure. helping me get deeper. I don't understand all. There's a lot of moving pieces and probably years and years of doctoral uh, pursuits to really understand and grasp all those pieces, but you were saying that there's private actors can exert force on the courts. So through activists, the courts. Through the th courts. activists can use the courts to change society. 
Right. So let me give one example that's very relevant to what we're dealing with today. Okay. Um, in Europe, Finland and Sweden, for example, um, they have a centralized healthcare bureaucracy. Um, there's a number of organs that deal with, with healthcare policy there, having to do with insurance and quality control um, and things like that. But by and large, it's a centralized system. And that means that um, uh, reforming a system like that is a lot easier than it is. I'm not saying easy, but easier than, than it would be here, uh, where we have not just a, uh, three branches of government that each have a say in, in, in this case, medical policy, but also, you know, decentralization in terms of federalism. Um, mm. And each state has separation of powers. And, and yes. uh, so, so yeah. you're getting into a, a very high level of complexity. Um, and this uh, highly decentralized um, power separated system allows for many entry points for um, strategic and clever organizations who know how to, and I don't use this word in a negative way, manipulate the policy process to achieve their desired policy outcomes. So a very good example of this would be the ACLU. Um, the ACLU, unlike in Europe, where you know a centralized healthcare bureaucracy um, can find evidence that some of these medical interventions um, kids lead to harm and can conduct systematic evidence reviews um, and can uh, change course, change policy um, relatively easily. Here in the United States, if, uh, first of all, you need to get together a legislative majority to pass a law. And then the ACLU is going to challenge that law in court. In 100% of cases, either the ACLU or some other legal advocacy group, usually the ACLU. And then it becomes a matter of uh, who has the more persuasive argument in the eyes of a judge, a federal judge, right? Um, so far, our side has not been very good at, um, at marshalling good evidence and good arguments. Um, the ACLU has been better. And I don't mean that the ACLU's arguments are good. I mean that the ACLU is is uh, more clever and um, better able to understand what will and will not persuade a judge, and they've proven that so far, right? Hmm. So this is a good example how uh, of how uh, medical policy is de facto set in the United States by non-governmental entities like the ACLU, or you know, on the other side of the issue, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Hmm. Um, and the, the, because the courts have such enormous power in the policy in the American policy process, that means that the groups bringing lawsuits and, and, and arguing before the courts have a lot more power than they do in other countries. Wow. Okay. That's kind of scary. It's scary, but you know, at the same time, there's advantages to, um, to, to, to the robust involvement of courts in our, in our politics, right? I mean, Americans, uh, you know, part of the American ethos is that everybody has their day in court. If you feel that you've been aggrieved that the government has done something wrong to you, um, you know, there's many, many different ways in which you can try to use the law, use courts to try to get justice, um, to try to get, you know, what you deserve. Um, that That's often much harder in other countries um, that are not as legalistic as we are. I mean, you're kind of taking me into the... Uh, there's a there's a big debate among legal scholars and political scientists, you know, to what extent America is more legalistic than other countries and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. We don't have to go in there, but um, but it's undeniable that uh, on the question of gender affirming care and, and pediatric gender medicine, um, the legalism of, of American culture and American politics um, has played an enormous role and will continue to play an enormous role. And, you, you know, you ask, how does this end? It's probably going to end in lawsuits. 
um, you know, there's quite a few steps that we need to um, okay. get through before we, uh, we we get successful lawsuits. But that's probably what's going yeah. to uh, make the most amount of impact. So Ron DeSantis or Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom can say, we are going to steal all the children uh, who want to transition and we're going to transition them and protect them from the parents, right? Because to not trans a kid is child abuse. Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis and his legislators say, we are going to protect kids um, and and make sure that uh, that kids are submitted to thoroughly ev- evidence based care, and we're going mit- to mitigate as much harm as possible um, because to trans a kid is child abuse, right? So they're coming from completely opposite directions, and they're kind of mandating the laws of the land. I guess through the legislatures, they're they're doing it either way. How how do the courts come in, and what happens if? If California is just like abducting children, more or less abducting children or, or like taking in runaways, like yeah. d- does, is there one size fits all legal uh, front on this or does it have to go state by state, case by case to set a precedent? Um, and then eventually public opinion might change and the legislatures will move in one direction or the other. So the answer to your question is yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all of the above. Um, look, um, you know, there's many different ways that this can go. I mean, starting with the kind of the narrow question of what happens in this um, race to the bottom between Florida and um, California. You know, first of all, there's just a simple, it's not a simple issue, but there is the issue of um, the Constitution itself, the full faith and credit clause. Um, it's not clear that California's law is constitutional. And I, I know that there are efforts underway to challenge it on constitutional grounds, mm-hmm. because essentially what the California law does is instruct its own organs of government, including its courts, to, dis, to, to not respect the, the laws and court decisions of, of, of another state. Right. So um, so that violates the basic norm of equality between the states, which is yeah. the norm that underwrites the full faith and credit clause. And is that um, has that been um, encroached upon before in other topics? It, it seems like this is a recipe oh, for civil yeah. war if it continues down. I'm serious. If it, it or at least um, state versus state <clears throat> kind of combat uh, on some some level, maybe just no. Right I don't. I don't think this is a recipe for civil war. Okay. I, I don't think so. I, right. I just don't think it affects enough people for that. Okay, but um, I mean, but it, it's setting the precedent of California saying it's its own country and it, it, its laws supersede the laws of other states, right? Right. And I wonder if this right. happened before um, and how far that can go. Um, examples don't come to mind. You know, one okay. of the disadvantages of doing what I do, um, as opposed to kind of staying in the academy, yeah. is that I'm wholeheartedly devoted to one topic and I tend to forget a lot okay. of the stuff that I used to know. So examples don't come to mind as, as, as okay. quickly as they used to. Sorry but, to um, test you. No, I, I mean, there, there, there are definitely um, many precedents for this in the past and, and court decisions and, and so on and so forth. But look, I mean, you know, here's what I would say. Um, I think in, in the short term, what's most troubling here is, um, as, I, you know, as I put it, the race to the bottom, right? Because if, if we're going to take a step back and look at um, California's policy versus Florida's policy. If you just look at you know the entire body of of medical literature, if you um, think carefully about medical ethics, um, I think you very quickly come to the conclusion that even though there's things to criticize about Florida's approach, it comes much much closer 
both to scientific truth and to basic medical ethics do no harm, right, um, than California's approach. You know, where I tend to worry, if I'm going to be honest, is uh, where they go after parents. And um, I believe mm -hmm. the Florida law, um, I'm fairly confident um, that the Florida law says something mm -hmm. like um, if there's a custody dispute between the parents, courts have to side with the parent who does not want to transition the kid. Now, that's probably good policy um, on some level. But um, hmm. I think in this particular case, I think it's misguided. Um, I think it's misguided for a number of reasons, one of them being that, you know, I mean, if you're talking about like a tie-breaking criterion, okay. Um, if you're talking about, you know, telling a, a judge that he should ignore potentially more important considerations, you know, if, if the affirming parent, so to speak, has other things that make that parent better than the non-affirming parent, then of course the, the, a judge should take that into account, right? It's not, the gender is not the only thing that matters for raising um, healthy kids. <laughs> um, but I think more importantly, um, I think we have to recognize that the vast majority of parents that transition their kids, medically transition their kids, I don't want to say vast majority, that's an empirical statement. Let's just say a, a, a significant number, and we don't quite know who among the parents, but a significant number of parents who transition their kids are not these, you know, Munchausen by proxy moms, right? Those exist for sure, but they are by and large parents who have been witnessing a severe deterioration in the mental health of their kids um, and who live in essentially an information bubble in which everybody they listen to, everybody whose opinion they trust, they regard as authoritative, whether it's the schools, the, 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 the medical clinics, the medical professions, the, the news they, they, they consume and they listen to, um, the neighbors they, they interact with, um, anybody in their life environment who has anything to say about this topic is all saying one thing in unison, which is you can either have a dead daughter or a live son. Um, and, and that this, this, these medical interventions are uh, safe and evidence-based and that there's a reason why most medical uh, associations in the United States support them unequivocally. And if you're a parent faced with all that information and a kid who, who says the only thing that's going to make me better and not suicidal uh, are these, uh, is, is getting hormones, you know, what can I say? I mean, if, if I was in that situation that I just described and I lived in that information bubble, I'm 100% confident that I would agree to it too. And I think that nine out of 10 people who tell you otherwise are lying. Hmm. Um, we're human. Um, you know, I'm sure that there are things that I do right now that I should not be doing because I'm, I'm, I'm doing them based on false information. Hmm. And I'm sure that, that applies to you and to everybody else. I think there's a there's a there's there's a little bit of arrogance um, among those of us who say, "Oh, I, I know that I would have done better if I was in their position." I really don't think that that's true. Um, hmm. So you know, I think it's it's absolutely crucial. Number one, that states like Florida not penalize parents for following the advice of medical professionals whom they um, they trust. Um, and trying to do everything in their power to make their own kids healthy and happy. Um, I think intentions here matter a lot. Um, so I think that that's just bad policy. But also, I think from our perspective, as people working on trying to reform pediatric gender medicine, 
I think it's, it's, it's important not to alienate those parents, not to treat them like child abusers, not to assume bad intentions, not to kind of arrogantly tell them, we know uh, that if we were in your situation, we would have acted dif differently, even if it's yeah. true. I still okay. think it's not a good thing to tell them. Okay. Well, now we're, we're outside of the law again, um, uh, into changing the culture, shifting the culture, you know, uh, like the stuff that you do on Twitter, you know, where you're just sharing information, challenging Mr. Turban, um, Jack Turban, the, the great uh, Dr. Turban, who's doing all this research, promoting trans health care for children. Um, but back to the legal aspect of it, you brought up parents, and that is one uh, kind of the unsung uh, victims of this in a lot of ways. I've, I've done a lot of work on the detransitioner stuff, and I know that there are many, many parents out there um, who just can't talk because it's a really difficult thing to talk to. They, it doesn't seem like they're well represented because they can't really stand up and stand out right now because they have privacy concerns and stuff like that. What is the, what is the, uh, the lay of the land if you are aware of it on like the parental rights um, vector of this or, or what's the state's relationship to the child and the parent and if that varies from state to state or from law to law if that if that's at all constitutional like is a child property or not property who's responsible for it um, well a child is not property but but a child is under the responsibility of parents um, yeah. the, the child's legal parents um, and, and so it requires an extremely compelling justification for the state to step in and tell parents what they can and cannot do. Um, which is not to say that there never exists such a just justification. Sometimes there obviously is, you know, there, we recognize that such a thing like child abuse exists and that in some very, very limited circumstances, it's better for the child to be separated from his or her parents. Um, but those are extreme situations. Look, I mean, let me try to address your question maybe from a, a strategic standpoint. Um, think about, you know, so any, I don't say any, but usually claims about rights, especially legal rights, are abstract. Um, rights claims are abstract claims. Um, they need to be applied in particular situations, and they sometimes yield results that we don't like. Um, so, you know, if you if you've ever read John Locke and his defense of property and the right to property, you'll see a very rosy picture of what the right to property leads to. It leads to a kind of society as a whole getting wealthier and and uh, the, the, the material conditions of life improving and everybody's boat rises, so to speak. But, you know, the same abstract right to property exercised by some people will lead to perverse results um, to. Um, to, to the use of, of property for, for um, anti-social uh, purposes. Um, and, and that's just in the nature of rights to be abstract in that way, right? Hmm. It's very difficult to defend a right without um, stating it at some level of abstraction that allows for both good and bad outcomes. Why do hmm. I say that? Because here, in this case, if you're talking about parental rights, um, you know, you're talking... Uh, at some level of abstraction about the right of parents to direct the upbringing of their children. And that includes to make decisions that we believe are harmful, are bad. Um, you know, <clears throat> um, there are plenty of parents who feed their kids horrible food and never encourage them to exercise. Those kids grow up to be obese 
and they have um, terrible quality of life and horrible health problems for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. There are parents who, um, you know, who are uh, overly permissive with the way in which they educate their kids, leading their kids to be um, thin-skinned and, um, and and fragile and in a sense of entitled entitlement. And, so, and that also screws them up for life. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, there are parents who are unnecessarily harsh with their kids, right? So we recognize that if you're talking about parental rights at a certain level of abstraction, you're going to get good parenting and bad parenting, and both co- both are protected under a doctrine of parental rights. So when it comes to the gender um, medical question, um, you know, I think from a, in the short term at least, I think there's there's a strategic value to stating the, the right at a high le- level of abstraction where you can say to a, a court, to a judge, um, I believe that parents have, uh, should have, do have, according to our judicial precedents, um, the right to direct the mental health up and, and health decisions of their own kids. Um, even if, you know, our school counselors disagree, even if you judge disagree, um, even if um, the American Academy of Pediatrics disagrees, mm-hmm. we should have the authority to make that decision because we are the parents, we are the ones invested 100% um, uh, spending every waking minute of our lives devoted to these young creatures. Um, so it, co- it comes under our responsibility and therefore our authority to make these decisions. Now, of course, the problem there is that you are going to run into, you know, if you state the, the right at that level of abstraction, you're going to run into cases of, of munchy moms, right, who say, okay, well, the same right that you've just alleged that you've just asserted also applies to me. And, and that means that if you can tell a school administrator um, you may not socially transition my kid without my approval behind my back. And these are real cases and controversies that are happening right now. In fact, um, uh, along with um, Ilya Shapiro and John Ketchum at um, Manhattan Institute, I just wrote a, a, re- a, a legal brief for a First Circuit case in which a school transitioned um, two kids behind their parents' back and against the parents' explicit um, uh, uh, request. Um <laughs> And so, um, you know, the munchy mom is going to say, well, if you're allowed to say no to the administration, then I should be allowed to say yes to the administration. And I think, I mean, honestly, I think at some level we're going to have to grant that, at least um, in the short term, because I think it's very difficult. Because otherwise we're just getting into the debate about whether gender affirming care and social transition are science based practices and more uh, and, and beneficial or not. And those debates are much, much harder to win. Um, than the debate over whether parents should have the authority to direct the upbringing of their own children. Um, so, so we have to start by, by stating the, the right at a high level, high enough level of abstraction that it allows for the munchy moms to, to, um, to, 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 to have the, the kid transition their kid, the school transition their kid. Later on, you know, once we once the medical establishment starts coming to its senses more and the public starts to realize that this is not, you know, a a closed book, um, that the science is not settled, that in fact other countries have taken a a, a much closer look than we than our medical institutions have and have found that the evidence is extremely poor. Once public opinion starts to shift in that way, liberal journalists start to actually do their job and, and investigate rather than cheerlead. Um, and we are seeing some improvements in that, I have, I have to say. Um, then we can start having the discussion of whether munchy moms have the right to transition their kids. Um, whether, whether in fact, this falls in that very narrow exception of child abuse, in which case um, parents don't have a right to make certain decisions with regard to the, to the health of their kids. 
Okay. But we're, we're not there yet. We're not even close. And I think okay. a much, much a low, a, a lower hanging fruit at the moment is the, is the first version of the parental rights argument that I made. Okay. With regard to that school transing the kids, what gave the school the right to modify, I guess, socially or physically the bodies of minors that they're uh, in charge of? Well, they're not like, modifying it, the bodies, but they are doing social transition, right? So okay. the pr pronouns and names and, and public accommodations, restrooms, sport teams, things like that. Um, <clears throat> what gives them the right? Um, well, I mean, in, in their eyes, they're complying with, because um, this happened in, in Massachusetts, they're, they're complying with state civil rights um, regulations. Um, and in fact, the Massachusetts Department of Education, I think it was in 2011, um, issued a, a regulation subsequent to a, a law that passed here um, uh, earlier <clears throat> um, in which it said, you know, uh, schools, generally speaking, have to treat students according to their uh, desired gender. Um, and, um, I, you know, may, maybe here I should get into... Uh, so this is another kind of very important issue that I think people don't um, adequately understand of how how these regulate regulatory environments work. It's not as though when you know the Massachusetts Department of Education or the Biden administration Department of Education issue these rules um, under Title IX or under whatever state civil rights codes um, instructing schools to accommodate transgender students in a certain way. It's not as though these rules are extremely detailed. Very often, you'd be surprised to learn, um, the rules are quite vague. In fact, the Biden administration right now um, is promulgating a rule in athletics that's quite vague. It basically says you have to accommodate students according to their gender identity in sports, um, unless you have a really compelling uh, reason not to in a particular area of sports. Okay, but what is a, 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 a you know, what are those areas and what is a compelling reason and, and how narrowly tailored does it have to be to survive judicial review? All of these questions are left relatively vague. And so if you are a school administrator, you know, what you see is a bunch of vague um, uh, administrative actions, rules, and you see a bunch of court cases. And the court cases themselves don't usually don't provide more clarity, often because they, they deal with very specific controversies in very specific places hmm. in the country. Mm -hmm. And so you say to yourself, OK, I'm not exactly sure what I should do here. I'm not sure what's going to get me um, uh, in legal trouble. And of course, if you're a school administrator uh, and, or a school board, you're probably going to listen to uh, the attorneys, the lawyers. And the lawyers are going to tell you that if you get a civil rights suit filed against you or a complaint filed against you in the Office for Civil Rights, um, at minimum, you're going to go through months and months of very embarrassing investigations, yeah. question raising. Um, but more likely, you're going to be dragged through a, a very expensive lawsuit that could end in a huge um, settlement. Uh, it did in the case of Gigi versus Gloucester. It ended, I think, it was a $1 million or $800,000 settlement. And, you know, for schools that operate, their budgets operate at the margin, an $800,000 settlement um, is massive. Um, that's a very, very difficult thing to have to overcome. And so you're going to want to do what's, what's the, the most uh, risk-averse thing from a legal perspective. Okay, so you so you operate now in an environment of legal uncertainty. You want to avoid <clears throat> legal liability because of the financial and reputational risk. How are you going to do that? Well, what the best way for you to do that um, 
is to defer to the very organizations that are going to sue you or file complaints against you. Okay. Wow. So, um, again, going back to what we were talking about, the post-1960s American um, uh, political, um, uh, American, uh, American state post-1960s, um, you have all these organizations now that operate in what's known as issue networks. Uh, that's kind of a, uh, just a technical term in political science. It basically just means um, individuals and organizations that work towards a common goal. Um, they they don't have to be very well coordinated. You, often they are, but they don't have to be. Often there's a lot of um, uh, movement of personnel between organizations. Mm -hmm. And they can also be, uh, uh, an issue network can encompass uh, non-governmental and governmental institutions. So for example, um, the woman leading the Office for Civil Rights uh, uh, under Biden, she also led it under Obama, Catherine Lehman, spent many of her years in, in uh, at the ACLU. So she has close contacts with the ACLU. She's kind of institutionally bred within the ACLU. When she leaves government, she's probably going to go back to the ACLU. It's kind of this revolving door, right? So if you're a school district uh, um, uh, and you want to avoid a lawsuit or, or a civil rights complaint by, let's say, the ACLU, you're going to say to another organization like GLSEN, right, the Gay, Lesbian, Sexual Education Network, I think it's called. Um, and GLSEN happens to have a model policy for schools. And GLSEN is part of the same issue network as the ACLU, as Lambda Legal, the Transgender Law Center. Um, and, and so you can say to GLSEN, look, if you come into my school district and give us your model policy and tell us kind of what cultural changes and institutional changes we need to do, um, you know, that'll get us on the good side of the ACLU, and then the ACLU will be much less likely to, to uh, file charges or file complaints against us. Okay. And so the, the, the creation of a vague regulation um, and, and, and a, a, a situation of legal uncertainty creates very strong incentives for yeah. school administrators to go excessively to the other side and go to the most radical organizations that will, um, uh, you know, protect promote them. policies. Or, yeah, no, that'll them, promote yeah. policies that that you know uh, 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 the Biden administration or the Massachusetts Department of Education would never dream of getting passed because they couldn't politically. Wow. Right. So that's how that's how um, uh, regulation, kind of this very complicated public-private partnership. And I don't even mean that like. Catherine Lehman is, you know, sitting at home saying, oh, yes, let's write vague regulations so that school districts will go to GLSEN and adopt their model policies. Um, I'm sure she probably knows that that happens, but I don't think that it's a conscious strategy necessarily. But that de facto is how it works. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've spoken to school administrators and school board members who have told me, yes, this, this is how it works. We want to avoid legal liability. And the best way to do so is just to... Um, it's just to, to get in touch with, with um, uh, transgender advocacy groups and let them tell you what to do, do what they say, and you'll be fine. Okay. So, so let's just say that, that there's somebody who is against the ACLU, or at least against these transgender policies. A, another private group um, can't target the ACLU. They have to target the school, right? They have to find an incident right. where, uh, let's just say, for sake of argument, a, a female was uh, sexually harassed by it trans identified male in, in the right. bathroom right and then uh, you know and then and then sue the school right so the school's just screwed no matter what yeah. right 
so yeah, so what you're basic so this is lawfare already, right? So so the idea of a fight fire with fire, right? If they're gonna do yeah. it this way, we should have our own uh, legal organizations try to try to do it from 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 a, a more sane and sober perspective. And yes, that that does exist. Um, um, you know, the, the organization that has been um, fighting this the most over the last five six years is um, ADF, um, Alliance Defending Freedom. Now, you know, that's a hard pill for some people to swallow, especially liberals, because ADF is a conservative organization. They usually defend kind of Christian causes and things like that. Um, I don't think that they necessarily limit themselves to a Christian conservative causes, but but th- that is de facto the, the bulk of their work. Um, and so I think it makes for, it, it makes a lot of liberals um, uncomfortable. Hmm. Um, and, you know, when you don't have um, a liberal law firm fighting on behalf, for example, of the right of girls to compete only against other girls, um, it gives the impression that the people opposing inclusion are um, are right wing, you know, Christian nationalists. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that that impression itself is highly valuable politically for organizations like the ACLU, Lambda Legal, mm-hmm. Transgender Law Center, Glisten. Um, they thrive on that on, on that perception and that public perception. Um, so to some extent, um, you know, I don't want to say we're screwed um, because of of this kind of regulatory reality in which um, private or non-governmental um, organizations, law firms, de facto are the ones driving policy change or, or, or policy retrenchment. Um, but that is the reality. And I should say that, you know, the, AC, the, the ADF um, has had a, a few important victories, but also several um, pretty high profile and, and damaging losses in some of these lawsuits, especially involving the accommodation of transgender students in schools. Um, um, and you know each one of those losses creates a bad precedent that then be, uh, becomes even harder to overcome. It, it, um, it, wow. it persuades school districts even more that they should defer to organizations like Glisten and the ACLU. And, and so wow, on, so, on, so forth. that is such a pitched bad. Like the uh, the playing field is pretty steep in in one direction. Yeah, yeah, and saying. you know, yeah. um, there's also just a question of like how much money is getting poured, how much institutional support is getting uh, poured into this on on both sides of the issue. I mean, so far, I think the the money and the institutional support is overwhelmingly fav- uh, in favor of of uh, the of kind of the the, mm-hmm. the trans the trans side. I shouldn't say the trans side. I should say the side advocating for gender self-identification policies in schools. Yeah, um, that's just a reality. Um, yeah, they got kind of the right side of history aura about them too, because they're they're just a long line of uh, wins, right? They're they're marching progress forward. Liberals have a, a distinct disadvantage in being allergic to right wing uh, thought or right wing appearances, because they mm-hmm. they want to be a part of polite society, and so the extreme right. left can be completely wackadoo. And is always a better friend than than the right. It just like one aisle over. Right. It's really interesting. And, and, yeah. and what you're describing is, you know, this political tribalism um, is really, I, I, I've learned over the last year, if there's one thing I've learned over the last year is how much tribalism explains what's been going on in the United States on everything trans-related, okay. including the, the medical front. Yeah. Um, it really is a, a central part of the story, the, the political hmm. tribalism. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, 
you, you, even if, and we've seen examples of this in journalism, liberal journalism over the last, even just few weeks, but, 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 but even more than that, of course, if it, if, if writing a piece that's critical of the medical establishment will in any way, shape or form lead people in your tribe to associate you with the other tribe, in this case, the GOP and its desire to pass laws banning these procedures, um, you know, the best you can do is say, yeah, I, I'm skeptical about the medicine, but I, I think the bans are, are horrifying and it's an attack on trans people. And, you know, you've heard all the rhetoric, right? So you kind of have to do these hmm. genuflections. Um, and that that's part of the logic of tribalism. Um, it's very, very difficult for somebody to say, to take a position like, um, you know, the science is hardly settled. This is an, a medical experiment. We have mounting evidence of medical harm. Um, I don't necessarily think that the Republican way of doing things is, is the best, but the Democrats are not doing anything except making the problem worse. I'm a lifelong liberal Democrat. Um, and, and if, if faced with a choice between the Republican solution and the Democratic solution right now, I prefer the Republican solution, even if it's not perfect. That taking a position like that is extremely difficult in, a, in a, a tribalist environment like ours, especially among elites, who sometimes even for just professional reasons have to signal their their belonging to their tribe. <laughs> oh, geez, um, that is. Uh, I I have to ask you, uh, how do you fix that? <laughs> wow, that's yeah, uh, that's uh, that's a question. I mean. What, do you worry about that? Um, uh, I, facing time, that reality, uh, yeah. Yeah, because it's not just on the gender issue. It's on yes. the race issue. It's on, you know, foreign policy. It's on um, economics. It's on immigration, the border. I mean, virtually every issue nowadays is filtered through the lens of tribalism, um, of this kind of intense um, uh, negative uh, polarization. Um, you know, you one defines one one's position um, in opposition to one's enemy, um, even without having good reasons for adopting one's position. That's kind of the, the fact that the enemy has the opposite position is in and of itself a justification for yours. Um, yes, I worry about that a lot. Um, I think that that is kind of the, the, the engine that's, that's um, I, I don't want to sound overly dramatic here, but tearing apart, uh, you know, American civil society, making it um, much more difficult for us to have um, rational evidence-based public debates, um, making making it much less possible for uh, elected representatives to work uh, on compromises, reasonable compromises. Um, it's making a lot making a lot harder for journalists to do their job, which is to start with a basic curiosity about their subject matter and ask probing questions, especially when there seems to be a consensus among the people they're interviewing. Um, Yes, it makes all of that much harder and much less likely to happen. How do you fix it? I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of kind of small things that probably can be done. Um, I think de-radicalizing higher education is a very important part of it. I think hmm. if you can get college students to be exposed to the best arguments of, of I don't want to say both because sometimes it's not just two, but all sides of a debate... Um, you can instill in them an appreciation for the complexity of managing um, or living in a diverse, bustling, dynamic society um, of 360 million people. 
um, you can impress upon them the importance of listening to the best argument and steel manning uh, the other side, listening to the best arguments of the other side before you can um, have the confidence to, to maintain the positions that you do, um, to being open-minded. Um, so, you know, kind of de-radicalizing the universities is one step. I think another step is, frankly, getting rid of social media. It's awful. It's hmm. really polarizing. It's, um, it creates echo chambers. Um, it's, uh, it, it, especially a platform like Twitter, and I say this as somebody who uses Twitter a lot, um, a platform like Twitter is built on negative emotions. It's fueled by outrage. Hmm. Um, it, it depends on people constantly wanting to call each other out and, and attack each other. Um, it's, not a, it's not a platform for saying, you know, um, I used to have this opinion, but now I'm not so sure. What are the best arguments? I mean, that's not what Twitter is, is about mm. at all. Well, Very I, I, I few people do that. I don't know Go if ahead. it's Twitter's fault. That's just a uh, human nature to just be right. I was never. Oh, wrong. I agree. I agree. Right. But Twitter weaponizes that part of our our, our nature, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the the kind of the Silicon Valley gurus, the 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 Zuckerbergs of the world, thought that when they were creating these new technologies, they thought that they would create a, a universal human community, right? A global community, a global uh, brother. Uh, uh, they did uh, of ship flinging. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. But again, that's that's, right. that's that's just human nature. That's that's the ape. That's right. In us, right? So a hundred percent. And and yeah. they didn't take human nature into account. They thought that human nature is something that can be. See, this is what got me so um, uh, fascinated with political theory, and especially wanting to study Rousseau. Uh, I think Rousseau is the origin of a lot of this kind of cause, um, uh, utopian thinking. Um, the idea that human nature is not some static. Um, thing that has to always be taken into account because it always threatens to kind of come to the surface and, and tear apart um, institutions and and um, and fray civil society. Um, that human nature is just kind of an artifact of history that can be um, re rewritten, so to speak. We can create a new type of human being. I mean, this, you know, it, it, I think it, the most famous expression of this, of course, is in Marx. Um, uh, the idea, and I, I, I would know, I grew up on a kibbutz in Israel, so I, you know, I uh, had socialism uh, beaten into me from an early age. Oh, they didn't do a okay. very good job, you can tell. Oh, really? Um, or maybe but, they did, and now they just made an enemy out of you. <laughs> I'm a mole, I'm secretly a mole. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this idea of, um, uh, you know, to each according to his needs and from each according to his ability. Yeah. is the exact opposite of the vision of human nature that we get in somebody like John Locke, which is kind of acquisitive individualism, um, the idea that, um, that, that human beings can never count, be counted on to just take only what they need and give everything that they can. That's just against human nature. And so the, the question becomes, do you build a society on the premise, uh, 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 while trying to reform human nature on the premise that it can be reformed, or do you build a society on the on the premise that human nature has many unfortunate aspects, but we have to take those into account and try to work with them rather than kind of naively trying to do battle with them constantly. And mm -hmm. the reason why Marxism always devolves into terror, into violence, into oppression, is because that aspect of our nature is so immutable. It is impossible to stamp out. And so you have to you have to revert to propaganda and violence and oppression and terror, right? I mean, not that there, everything is rosy and perfect in capitalist societies, but yeah. capitalism at least builds on the perhaps unfortunate, but in the end, 
the the immutable aspects of human nature. Okay. So yes, yeah, so that's what got me interested. Uh, uh, that question again. We, we kind of got sidetracked here. No, I I, I, I enjoy it. Um, so 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 governance or, or political theory is is regulating human nature or just regulating humans. Uh, you know, just having power over human beings and either reforming or regulating them. I guess is that a, a correct binary? It's better. There's certain political theories we're going to regulate what is there and other ones are we're going to reform what is there and in america yeah. society does it kind of go back and forth depending yes. on and and so these activists go in and they're the reformers and then they can use the pen the i guess the the legal apparatus can can take can go in either direction to certain degrees right yes i think so um yeah these are the two major kind of intellectual deep intellectual forces um, shaping American politics, um, mm. you know, you could say f from from the founding, but certainly since the dawn of the progressive era, the late 19th yes. century, um, you know, uh, I'm I'm hardly the first person to make this observation. Thomas Sowell, for example, made this observation. But um, yes, I think I think there is that kind of um, Rousseauian strand to the American left um, until this day. Um, the idea that you know children are. Uh, blank slates that um, the, the the reason why people are um, I'm using Rousseau in language here, but but wicked, evil, right? The reason why people it's not because they're born that way. It's not because of some propensity within human nature. And I'm not taking the kind of theolo theological Christian position of of that um, of, uh, of of sin. I'm saying that kind of the more Hobbesian position of you know we have these propensities in us. Um, that are always right under the surface and very powerful and, and wanting to come out. And so living in a civilized society means constantly having to suppress them, self-restraint, constantly having to restrain ourselves. So there are these, all these mechanisms of restraint in order to get us to do what's in our own interest against, the, against our own passions, against our own immediate yeah. desires and, and needs, so to speak. Um, you know, so, for example, the institution of, of the family is a very good example of that, right? Men are not naturally inclined towards monogamy and sticking around to take care of their own kids. Um, but it's a much better social model than just having men spread their seed as much as they possibly can and abandon kids when it's convenient for them. So this is a good example of, of an institution that habituates us and tries to kind of contain the worst impulses of our nature, ultimately for our own benefit. Um, and there are many institutions like that. And I think, I think even, especially in the gender debate, I think you're seeing this, this uh, deep de debate about um, nature versus, um, uh, it's not nature versus nurture, it's, it's um, culture versus nature um, play out very vividly. And that's what got me interested in this debate in the first place, is that it's, it's hard to find a clearer example um, in America, in American politics today of this debate, philosophical debate, than than the debate over uh, the notion, the very notion of the transgender child. Yes, yeah, which is which is odd because if, insofar as the trans child is a creation of the progressive left, who are kind of blank slatists, there's there's always just these weird hypocrisies in leftist thought. Maybe I'm just uh, biased against it at this point, but you know, the, the the child is a blank slate, but already knows itself. Like the child can declare its its own nature, its own gender. The child has authority. We follow the child, but at the same time, we're aware that that society is always corrupting this pure entity, and so we have to 
shape society around it. Maybe there's not so much hypocrisy, but there just seems like some sort of tension in that, uh, in that belief system and how it's created the trans child. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we're really kind of trying to trace an intellectual history here, um, <clears throat> I think to really understand the notion of the transgender child and, and why this this entity has has just um, occupied a place of of almost um, uh, idolatry. Cherubic, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it cherubic stature. Yeah, um, uh, on the left, I think really has to do with the the the, the intrusion of um, uh, Nietzsche um, into kind of leftist thought, especially huh. in the post-war years. The idea that what matters is not, as Rousseau would put it, sincerity. That uh, being sincere means that your outer and your inner match, right? You're not okay. hip hypocritical. Yeah. Uh, to, from a Rousseauan perspective. Hypocrisy is the worst thing you can be. It's the ultimate vice, right? That's really? what makes okay. people wicked and, and corrupt society and so on and so forth. Um, and, it, and most importantly, it's what um, uh, makes you unhappy as a person. Um, uh, you know, then comes Nietzsche and says something like, no, it's, it's, the, the, the ideal is not to be sincere. It's to be authentic. It's to be self-creative. Um, and so the mm. idea of, I, I think the, the notion of the transgender child appeals to a culture that has been transformed um, in the wake of, of, of the Nietzschean revolution on the left. Um, the, this idea that, um, that, uh, mm. that, that to, be, to realize your human potential means to uh, assert a type of a mode of existence that is not patterned on anything else, that is yeah. un wholly unique to you. Um, and if you read a book... Um, I think I have it here. This quite possibly could be the, the, the Bible of kind of the, 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 um, the transgender child left okay. um, by Diane Aronsoff, the gender creative child. And it really gives you um, insight into this, into the mind um, of, of what, you know, why the transgender child occupies such a place of reverence um, among um, uh, uh, left-wing thinkers. Um, it's because the, 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 the idea is that this child manages, as she puts it in the book, to kind of weave together all these um, influences of, of nature and culture and history and meaning and language, um, and to do it in such a way that's unique. That has yeah. never been done before and will never be done again, right? Every child is its own, you know, unique flower. Chimera. What's that? Chimera, in a way. Uh, what do you mean by phantasm, that? Phantasm. Uh, just a self-created um, hybrid. Uh, kind of, from a certain point of view, it's it's kind of monstrous. And in, in a classical, like mythological point of view, this is a self-created amalgamation of things. It's not like a natural issuance. It's it's some somehow beyond. Uh, good and evil somehow beyond nature it's somehow like the representative of the self-created one right um yeah yeah I, I mean that's true um and 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 you know um it i think it allows for adults who are uh, immersed in this way of thinking and i don't mean you know that they went to like that they got a phd in queer studies i mean just you know um <laughs> regular, you know, white liberal suburban mothers who for whom compassion is not just the most important virtue, it's the only virtue. Um, 
for whom, you know, it's unthinkable that um, self-expression in children is not important. Of course, it's it's the most important thing, right? This kind of watered down um, uh, uh, um, moral vision of individual, uh, of, of, self, of expressive individualism. Um, I yeah. think the notion of the transgender child really provides um, uh, uh, a target for a lot of projection um, <clears throat> of what, what we wish society could be like, what we wish our lives could be like. Um, hmm. If we only had the courage to stand up to the social norms and conventions that we, that, that, that we feel constrain us. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that that's why the, the transgender child just um, um, uh, plays such an important role in the in the lore um, yeah. of, of of the modern left. There's the there's nothing left, there's nothing um, quite as vivid on the other side. There's no quite uh, it has the advantage of being an icon of of having this magical property this this magic word this magic um, identity there. The those who are against the trans child only have there's no such thing as transgender child, right? There's just children. There's no vision of the child. I guess there, I guess that, that would, that's what motivates, um, a certain portion of the political backlash is this protecting children, right? Yeah. Protecting the bodies of children, protecting nature, but it, it's more based on intuition and it doesn't have such a transcendent idealism to it, to just kind of be. Well, I mean, I do think that it has natural, something of the transcendent in it this idea of the kind of the inviolable you know pure child that needs to be protected against um nefarious social forces that are constantly trying to use the child's psyche or the child's body in order to achieve um their own you know contemporary um faddish purposes that are at odds with the child's true well-being and true um, interests um, so there is, I think it very, very quickly kind of bleeds into that, um, uh, into that idea. Um, and that's also why it can become a little bit zealous and a little bit excessive, right? I think when we start to see people um, who, who are advocating for reform say things like, you know, anybody who says anything in support of gender affirming care is a groomer, meaning they want to somehow sex- sexualize and sexually abuse children, and maybe that's not what they mean by groomer, but that's how I understand it. Yeah. Um, I think that's just clearly not true. I think for most of them, it's it's well intentioned at the very least. Yeah, um, that's another them, tribalistic yeah. thing. It doesn't right. seem like the right does tribalism quite as well as the left at this point in history. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it seems that it's always kind of clunky. Um, it, it's kind of cringy. It, it doesn't have the same appeal like a trans child it's just such a it's just this magical thing you can just feel the rainbows like splashing on your face when you face this trans child that walks into the room right um yeah whereas the other guys saying okay groomer i mean you know my friend does that you know james Lindsay. he kind of was part of part of that thing it's just it's interesting the meme level of this uh debate which is kind of a separate from the legal level but but it is very important the meme warfare the mm. how the ideas that how the cultural values are shifted um that whole realm is is another uh, vector of uh change uh in this debate yeah, you're right. I mean, it's interesting that you put it that way. Kind of the meme level, let's say the the, um, the battle over symbols is yes. very important, right? Yes. Um, contrasted with kind of the the bloodless, um, uh, uh, highly formalistic, procedure based legal battles, which tend to involve uh, you know men and women in suits 
um, yeah. making dry arguments and citing 14,000 court cases. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, there's there's a very, very important overlap between those two, of course, because judges are human and they live in society and they're uh, exposed to a lot of this stuff. And, you know, if you read if you read the court cases, the early court cases from 2015, 16, 17, dealing with um, students who identify as trans and filing and file uh, lawsuits under Title IX and equal protection, you do see, I mean, one of the most fascinating documents is the, um, um, it's a, a concurrence written by Judge Andre Davis in the Fourth Circuit. And this was in the, uh, the uh, um, Gavin Grimm versus um, Gloucester County um, School Board case. So this is the first real kind of federal lawsuit that resolved in favor of a, of a trans-identified student. Um, and Judge Davis, um, who's, you know, a former, I think he was a former ACLU guy, appointed to the federal bench by President Obama. Um, you know, uh, uh, exactly what you'd expect of an Obama appointee. And he writes this two or three page um, memorandum opinion. Um, and I, I think your listeners really should go and, and, and look at the uh, opinion. It's, it's fascinating because it really... It, it says, you know, Gavin Grimm takes his place among history alongside um, Fred Karamatsu, Linda Brown, right? These kind of uh, um, 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 icons, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, and, and it's, it's, it's remarkable rhetoric, um, right? That, that this kid is a, is a civil rights hero and is going to go down in history. And he says things like... Um, Gavin Grimm shows us uh, the injustice that happens when um, government organizes society according to outdated social constructs. Just kind of this, you know, academic babble um, that you would not expect of a federal judge. Um, but clearly, judges are immersed in, in our culture and they're paying attention to these to these um, issues and they're not immune from, from the symbolism of, of all of it. And I think if you ask me, why is it um, that you know the two uh, the two states that have um, preliminary injunctions by courts against their bans on pediatric gender transition. So Arkansas and Alabama, um, uh, in both cases, federal courts issued what's called a preliminary injunction, which is basically when a, uh, a court uh, blocks the enforcement of a of a law pending a full trial on the merits. Um, that's actually a really really important part of of the story here. But let's leave that to the side. Um, you know, in the in the Alabama case, the judge was a Trump appointee, Lyle Burke. Um, you know, uh, with with uh, ties to the Federalist societies. This is not some left wing nut job. I mean, this is you know, a, 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 presumably a conservative judge, um, and even he agreed um, to place a temporary block on the on the states. Um, uh, ban on hormones, on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. Um, and when you read, again, when you read the, the, the amicus briefs and the, and the briefs um, submitted by the parties and the judge's reasoning, it's hard not to come away with the conclusion that the judge starts from the premise that there is such a thing as a transgender child yeah. and yeah. Tr transgender children need transgender medicine. Yeah. And if you if you if you start from the premise that trans that some kids are just trans, meaning they're born trans, um, rather than trans being a political identity that some adults with gender dysphoria can um, freely adopt for themselves, um, if you start from the premise that trans is an innate property that one is born with, 
it's very difficult to resist the idea that trans kids should get trans health care. Yeah. Wow. So, so it turns out that even conservatives yeah. uh, and conservative judges can very easily become immersed in these ideas and, and not, yeah. not resist them. So what's your going forward, uh, just as a like summary of where you are and where you're going forward, how do you see your work? Where you, Where's the lines of attack? Where's the interesting uh, fissures and tensions that you're aiming blows at or, or trying to tease out, bring to light? What, what's your method? And Yeah, um, that's a good question. You know, it, it, it shifts now and then, um, because when you're working on an issue like this, you have to kind of be at you know, be on your feet and, and be willing to uh, um, change your, your tactics um, here and there. But yeah. I would say that, um, you know, I see the state bans, for example, as, as at the moment, um, a necessary evil. Um, yeah. I, I would like for, for it not to have to happen that way. I would like for the medical establishment to take responsibility, to come to its senses, to at minimum do what the, what the Europeans have done. Um, you know, we don't need to do another systematic review of evidence. There are already two that have been done in the UK. Um, there's one, the state of Utah in its law actually requires that a new systematic review be done. Um, there was also a, a, an overview of systematic reviews done by experts in evidence-based medicine at McMaster University um, hmm. uh, uh, for um, commissioned by Florida, um, the state of Florida. So we have the evidence reviews. That doesn't mean that, you know, if the AAP wants to revise its policy and, and take this seriously, if it wants to do another evidence review, fine. As long as it follows the proper methodology, it's going to come to the exact same conclusion um, as the other evidence reviews have come to. But Which point to what, just for uh, clarity? What are these evidence? What are these evidence-based reviews? Oh, uh, that, point the, to? Uh, that, that the, the um, there's ex very low confidence um, in the in the certainty of the results of the studies that are cited in support of a gender transition, meaning that the results are unreliable. Um, they they suffer from critical risk, risk of bias, um, and uh, the conclusions in these in these um, articles uh, may be completely wrong. Uh, we don't know. We don't know because we don't. These studies lack the proper methodology to find mm. to to. to to come to the conclusions that they that the authors or the journalists reporting on them uh, claim they they find right. Yeah. Um, there's no controlling for psychotherapy usually. Um, there's there's a high degrees of loss to follow up, and all that loss to follow up could be regret and detransition. We don't know. Um, uh, you know, the, the studies look at very short-term outcomes. There's one study that looked at um, satisfaction with mastectomies three months after the procedure. Give me a break. Talk to these girls when they're in the 30s and 40s and see if, mm. if their quality of life has improved. Maybe it mm -hmm. has. I don't. What we don't know. That's that's the problem. Um, so anyway, um, if if you know if the medical establishment comes to its senses and says, all right, let's do this as evidence-based medicine rather than eminence-based medicine, which is the norm right now. Um, it's hard to see how we're not going to see some kind of change, right? You're going to see, at minimum, I think you're going to see some reasonable um, restrictions being imposed. Um, you'll see kind of the FDA get involved um, and the medical uh, associations and states passing regulations saying, if you want to do this, it has to be within tightly controlled research protocols, just like the Europeans are doing. Um, and there has to be very careful screening. 
Um, you know, the, um, if, if, a, if a kid has psychological comorbid conditions, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, ADHD, history of sexual trauma, autism, whatever it is, um, we have to make sure we have to do differential diagnosis. We have to make sure that the gender issues are not secondary to these other underlying unresolved issues. Um, so there has to be a, a lengthy um, mental health assessment prior to approving any kid for hormones. And all of this is, is assuming that we're going to run the experiment. I think it's well within um, the prerogative of the states to say no medical experiment on children. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, the nice thing about American federalism is that you can get a little bit of both, right? You can get kind yeah. of laboratories wow. of experimentation, but... Um, <sighs> Um, but but I, I tend to a more cautious stance here and so, say that this is a medical experiment on kids. The the meme of the trans kid destroys or obscures the fact that this is a medical experiment on children. Right. It just completely. This is not an experiment at all. This is just reality based. This is the. Tr that's how powerful that little yeah. meme is. I mean, it I totally can tell you, having spoken to quite a few liberals on this topic. Um, um, and I mean, people who know me and respect me enough to know that I'm not out to kill trans people and I'm not full of hate and anything like that. They know that I'm well-intentioned. They just kind of start from the premise of like, how, why are you taking this position against what, you know, the New York times is telling us and the medical associations, like what, what gives man? Um, and I can tell you that, you know, within 20, 30 minutes of conversation, I can easily persuade them that there's a, a real medical scandal afoot in the United States. Um, you know, I don't even have to talk about what happened in Europe, although I do. Um, um, what is almost impossible for me to do is to persuade them that no child is transgender. That's impossible. You know, I tell them things like, look, we know that some adults experience severe distress um, because of their body. We know that um, there's this uh, mental health diagnosis called gender dysphoria, which may in fact um, uh, more or less accurately describe this, this, this psychological experience. We know that some of the adults who have gender dysphoria um, identify as transgender um, with everything that that means. And we know that some of these adults um, report sincerely, they're not lying, they report sincerely that they first started experiencing their feelings in childhood. I grant all of that. The problem is that there are a lot of other kids who have indistinguishable experiences who do not grow up to be gender, lifelong gender dysphoric um, and or trans, right? And, and we have no way of knowing which kids are which. And so the path of least harm, given everything we know about trends, about rising rates of trans identification, about social influences, about the risk benefit calculus, all these things, right? The most responsible course of action is to delay the decision until after adolescence, when the brain has had a chance to develop, when kids are more mature, they're better able to understand, to, to, under, um, to project themselves into the future. And they're not just thinking about you know, next week, um, delay the decision until adulthood, then let them decide. No problem. Um, they'll agree with me on that. <laughs> and still, they will not let go of the idea of the transgender child. Hmm. 
I, I, I explained to them in detail why I don't believe in the notion of the transgender child for that reason, because it, it just it, um, it, operationally, it leads to very bad outcomes. Yeah. Even if, the, even if transgender children exist, even if it would be better for us to not agree, not adopt that belief system because of the unintended, unintended consequences and harm that it can create. And you know, I give them th th that is, I think, the most honest, rational, evidence-based, compassionate argument that I can possibly yeah. give them, yeah. and they still cannot shake loose of the notion of the transgender yeah. child. It's kind of, it's 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 something deep. I think it, you know, I just I think it's a, a deep. It's a manifestation of a very deep belief in it's it's a deep anthropological stance yes. that right. that humans are self-created. That that we will reality that we will our identities right. this is our our individuality is the highest uh good it's it's very deeply liberal i mean this is entrenched well, in our culture and, and that's that's nietzsche in a nutshell right i mean that that is the that is nietzsche's influence over the american <laughs> left um yeah. and and it's there's kind of rousseauian themes there for sure yeah. that kind of the, the being in touch with nature um you know when somebody like diane Ehrensoft says kids are our teachers they teach yeah. us um, and we should follow their lead. She says this in the book. We should follow their lead. Um, they, 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 they kind of show us the light. Um, this has these very powerful Rousseauian themes of a return to nature because children are the closest to nature um, yeah. of all human beings, right? They're, they've yeah. been the least socialized and therefore they're the most natural, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think you're, you're seeing kind of, but again, I, I agree with you in everything you just said, but I think, I think people on the left believe in the transgender child because they need to believe in the transgender child because it fulfills a, a, a certain psychic need on their part. And I think that's what I was, I was saying, I was saying earlier. What, what do you think that that need is? Well, I think it's, it's the, it's the, it's a combination of the two things that I just said. Um, yeah. it's, it's the need to kind of be in touch with nature over and against, you know, a kind of a conformist bourgeois world, society yeah. that, yeah. that poses a lot of, um, restraints on you. Yeah. Um, and it's the need for, um, for, 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 for individual self-creation and non-conformity as its own good, as an, as an intrinsic human good, which is a really bizarre idea if you think about it. Um, <laughs> But but this is this is characteristic of the mindset of the yeah. post nineteen sixties left, right? Okay. Um, so I think the transgender child kind of perfectly captures those ideas in, in a living reality, in a lived reality. Yeah. Do you have any notions and of how in rainbow to... colors too? Yeah. No, it, it's very sparkly. Um, <laughs> do you have any notions on on how to unravel that? Or is it just a? It's just baked in. It's just a. It's an ideology. It's it's so entrenched. So I'm going to be honest. I come back to this question a lot because you know people ask me like, where is this going? Where are we going to be in ten years, fifteen yeah. years from now? Is this going to be like lobotomies where everybody recognizes it's just a medical scandal and we move on? Yeah. Um, or is it going to be like abortion where like we we get entrenched into these two warring camps based on irreconcilable principles and it's never going to go away? Yeah. And my answer is that neither one or, nor the other. It's not going to be like abortion. Um, uh, I'm not, I won't explain why, but let's just say abortion is just, um, it is really a clash between two irreconcilable philosophical principles. Um, 
And and it's not going to be a the lobotomy situation because I, I think precisely for the reasons I said earlier, I think there's always going to be a need to believe in the existence of the transgender child. And I think that that as long as people assume that, that, that there are these entities called trans kids, it's going to be very difficult to get, you know, a critical mass of people on the left to agree to put a stop to this. Um, so I think realistically, the best we can hope for is a situation in which the red states have banned it and the blue states have moved towards a model similar to what's going on in Sweden and Finland and the federal government largely stays uninvolved. Hmm. That's, I think, I think that would, that's probably the best we can hope for. And the medical wow. establishment, you know, the AAP, Endocrine Society, they're never going to say we were wrong. Yeah, um, no. yeah. never going to happen. But they will t probably back lawsuits. away from it. Yeah. yeah, after some lawsuits and stuff, and, and, and maybe exposure of some very embarrassing documents and internal communications, I think they'll probably back away from it a little bit. And say, yeah. no, we didn't mean it this way. We meant it that way. And in the vast majority of cases, you, there should be only psychotherapy. And here's the criteria for when you can use hormones and all these kinds of things. I think yeah, that's yeah. really the best yeah, yeah. The best we're going to get. Do you really, really think that the federal government can be told to keep their hands off of things? An issue like this, a civil rights issue, it's, nonetheless? It's going to be, yeah. So, I mean, that's the other thing, right? I mean, one of the things that makes American, the American situation so much more difficult to reform than other countries is the layering of this debate atop the civil yeah. rights debate, right? The wow. framing yeah. of this issue as a civil rights issue. Now, note, but, but, but notice that the, the, the framing of this as a civil rights issue presupposes the notion of the transgender child, right? Because civil rights is, is about minorities. Um, it's about using laws and institutions to provide certain protections or benefits to minorities to a certain uh, defined, discrete group. Um, yeah. So you have to believe in the notion of the transgender child for the civil rights framing to make sense in the first place. Um, but yes, it, uh, because of the way, and this kind of gets us back to Caldwell, because of the way in which civ the civil rights revolution has given rise to um, what my mentor um, at my, uh, my doctoral work, my, my um, uh, dissertation advisor, has called the civil rights state, which yes. is... Um, you know, kind of a network of institutions um, that enforce laws, issue uh, regulations, declarations, interpretations, all these kinds of things. It's not just like the Supreme Court. It's a lot, a lot more than that. Um, because we have such a, a, a pervasive and entrenched civil rights state that touches every aspect of our day-to-day -day lives, it's going to be very, very difficult to reverse course entirely on this issue. Wow. Do you think that there'll be something that follows it up, like this kind of followed the gay marriage thing? Do you think that? What do you mean by that? Do you think that you mean a pivot to a different issue? No, not pivot, but just another, like another, like the civil rights thing. It has to be constantly expanding. It needs right. to be constantly defeating. It's That's a right. very colonial, very like, it, like it's an empire. It, it just has to expand. So right. this is this is the edge. The trans kid is the edge. Right. What 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 worst thing could you think of that that it'll? Um transhumanism that's why i suppose this will just this is just precursor to transhumanism well, look i mean there's a there's a, a noticeable overlap between transgenderism and transhumanism um not just in the practice of it right we see a lot of you know, kind of on twitter you know the the the, the 20 year olds who list all of their mental health problems and then yes. their she yeah. he they it whatever pronouns um 
also sometimes have pictures of furries and they they have all these kind of um, animalistic um, um, aspirations and stuff like that. Um, so there's 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 a, a, an obvious overlap in practice. Um, elective euthanasia all... is pretty cool up in What's Canada. That? Elective euthanasia that's a civil rights that could be the next thing. Yeah, I do think that that raises slightly different issues. I mean, so there's kind of the euthanasia vector. There's the um, the normalizing pedophilia or sex with minors uh, vector. I've been asked about that before. Look, I mean, my basic intuition here is. It's not just a kind of a uh, just an easy slippery slope, right? That one automatically leads to the other. I don't think it works like that. Um, I think there you're going to have to see some some real kind of philosophical and institutional changes for us to get from a point of trans kids exist and they deserve you know hormones and surgeries to the point of um, uh, you know, the entire Democratic Party and left of center elite establishment saying, well, yes, of course, it's totally fine for a 40 year old man to want to have sex with a 12 year old girl. It, I, I think I think there's there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of um, uh, mishaps that have to happen before we get to that situation, which isn't to say that we're never going to get there. But I don't see it on the on the, on the horizon mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Do you miss being a professor? Or were you only researching Cause you, you're great? lecturer speaker i wonder do you miss that do you miss yeah, having thank students you, thank you. Yeah. um i miss it a lot yeah. i do um yeah. and actually the, the the place that i taught that i enjoyed the most was uh, believe it or not wellesley college okay. um which is a you know an all girls although no no longer an all girls um uh, college uh, elite liberal huh. arts college in massachusetts um and you know the 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 women who attend Le uh, Wellesley are uh, on the one hand on the left, but on the other hand, you know, very uh, bookish, and many of them are very open-minded. They love learning. Yeah. Um, and that was that was a, a phenomenal experience for me being able to teach them. Um, so yeah, I miss that. I don't miss teaching bad students or students who are unmotivated. That's true. Um, that's yeah. that's not an enjoyable experience, and that's a lot of what you do in academia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but do you yeah, think teaching good students is second to none? Are you Are you? Do you just write right now? Research and write. Do you, are you policy wonk? Are you going and, and meeting people out on the different legislatures, uh, or do you I'm have sorry, any plans to? You know, like some somebody who goes around the state legislatures and informs uh, policymakers and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we 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 provide. You guys do that. Uh, so think tanks provide technical expertise. Yeah. Um, technical advice. Um, so, for example, you know, if a state wants to pass a law dealing with gender medicine and they want to know, you know, if they're getting the science right, they want to know, um, you know what studies are there that support or undermine a certain claim, things like that. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I can help on. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I most of my time I spend um, writing, researching, um, you know, kind of trying to, again, uh, my target audience is not so much academics, although I get a lot of emails from per university professors who say that I'm pretty much pretty much their, their only source of information on this issue. Um, but my intended audience is, you know, kind of journalists at, at leading outlets policymakers um, who read, you know, places like City Journal, Wall Street Journal, whatever, um, and people like you, right? Hmm. I mean, you, I don't know if you consider yourself a journalist, but you are a public intellectual for sure. Yeah. 
content creator is the the most neutral term that I'll, that oh, I'll use okay. for that. But th so thank you for for uh, joining me for some content creation. Um, and where can people find you? Um, are you? You just do you have like your a centralized blog or is the, your posts? go here and there and everywhere. I, I don't have a centralized blog, but they can go to yeah. my Manhattan Institute profile page yeah. where yeah. they can find all of my writings. Um, and you can also follow me on Twitter. Um, yeah, that just, evil, evil place that you hate that and love, place, but are always yeah. on. You know, I have to say on Twitter, <laughs> I, I'm trying in my own kind of mild way to, mm. to change some of the norms, especially with regard to how this issue is debated, um, to get people to engage in good faith, to not hurl insults. Uh, I'm trying to invite people on the other side to engage yeah. substantively. And I, yes. I have been getting some traction. And so, yeah, you can follow me at Twitter, uh, on Twitter at Lior Sapir, L-E-O-R-S-A-P-I-R, um, or just go to my Manhattan Institute page. But everything I write and everything I, I, not everything I think is worth reading, but a lot of what I think is worth reading for that other people write. I post on Twitter too. Yeah, yeah, you're 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 a force of nature in your own right, and it's great to finally well, get you, you on my show and and learn about the legality um, aspect of this thing, which is highly overlooked because it is kind of headaching. But you put the information in a way that I found really engaging. I know my audience got a lot out of our talk, so thank you very much for your afternoon. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on your show. Cool. And boom.